Psalm number two, translated by Miles Coverdale. This is the Book of Common Prayer version. Why do the heathen so furiously rage together? And why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stand up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bonds asunder. Let us cast their cords away from us. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will preach the law, whereof the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Desire of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt bruise them with a rod of iron, and break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be learned, ye that are judges of the earth. Serve the Lord in fear, and rejoice unto him in reverence. Kiss the Son, lest ye be angry, and so ye perish from the right way. If his wrath be kindled, yea, but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Welcome to the Psalms with me, James Dellingpole. And today we're going to deal with the wonderful Psalm 2 with my amazingly erudite friend, Alex Thompson. Alex, Alex, welcome back. I say welcome back because you know and I know, uh, as the viewer and listeners don't know yet. We did this before uh, and, and the, the, the wind, the high winds shook my, so, so shook my satellite receiver thing that, that, that we had to nix the podcast. So we're going to try again. I, it's I think almost the summic, were... isn't it? The, the winds so shook my satellite that I was not able you know, it's, yeah. it's uh, something that, well, sat- David didn't have satellite dishes, but it's the kind of thing he would mention in one of his plaintive psalms, isn't it? I think it's what happens when you when you spend too much time, as I do, reading the psalms. I read the psalms every night. before I, I do at least three psalms before I go to bed. Um, and I read them in the, the Miles Coverdale translation, which we'll talk about in a bit. But first of all, just rem- I, I'm I was so fascinated with your story about how you became familiar with Hebrew, which is a difficult language, isn't it? It's one of the more difficult languages around, for sure. Um, well, the first answer, I suppose, is if you take to languages early, then acquiring other ones, even if they're from totally different language families in different alphabets and written the wrong way around, that becomes easier. The other thing to say is the interest is there. You know, many parents... Uh, of recalcitrant children will will attest to this. If you manage to snag their interest in an unexpected way, then they'll they'll follow through and uh, devour the subject nevertheless. And with me, I, I was certainly never reluctant to learn languages, but it was more particularly the knowledge that it would open up the Word of God to me in uh, in new ways that got me powering through. So I had my father's books to hand. I could always raid them from his library. Harper's Elements, another 19th century classics. The Kyle and Dalich Commentaries, that's K-E-I-L and D-E-L-I-T-Z-S-C-H. These are 19th century German greats, also available in English in various uh, editions. These opened up to me 
not least on the Psalms, that you were missing a world of information if you didn't have the Hebrew. And the big break is, uh, I went up to Cambridge and the then Dean of St John's College, Cambridge, uh, taught Hebrew to all comers at the university. And he did so at what until very recently was still the Divinity School, uh, opposite the front of St John's College, Cambridge. If you go to it now and uh, look across the road from the front of St John's, you will see uh, a building with uh, statues of divines in the front because they haven't removed them, obviously. But it's no longer the Divinity Schools. It was until around the turn of the millennium. And it's the very location where Jewry, the Jewish quarter of Cambridge, was. And Desiderius Erasmus, the Rotterdam humanist scholar, went to that very place in Cambridge to learn his Hebrew directly from the rabbis. There weren't even any grammars yet. Uh, the first ever European Protestant, well, not even Protestant, but European Renaissance man to learn Hebrew was Johannes Reuchlin around this time of the Reformation. And so if you were, uh, were of Erasmus's or Luther's generation, you had to go to the Jews. And a very few years later, William Tyndall, who got martyred halfway through his Old Testament translation uh, by a collusion between Henry VIII and Emperor Charles V, uh, Tyndall, in his famous last letter, written just a few miles from where I am today in Brussels, uh, said, I please beg you, let me carry on with my Bible translation. For that, I need the grammar. There was only one. The lexicon. There was only one. Uh, and the text. There was only one of the Hebrew. And yet he produced that monumental translation. Not the Psalms, though. Uh, because as you've referred to, his work for the rest of the Old Testament was completed by a number of sympathetic men uh, using pseudonyms, Thomas Matthew, uh, Miles Coverdale was the, uh, the translator who did the, the Psalms, and as people know, even though we have the full King James Version now, what's sung in Anglican services is uh, still Coverdale's translation, not the, uh, the King James Version, so it's the original, shall we say, first generation Reformation translation that we use there. Uh, but that's it. Uh, just as a, an 18 to 20 year old, I had the opportunity to get to grips with Hebrew properly. And after that time, a number of conservative Bible societies in various countries said, would you mind awfully making use of it? Because we're short of people who can check, in my case, Eastern European translations against Greek and Hebrew. And then uh, eventually I was made a, a teacher of Hebrew for the School of Theology for my small Dutch Reformed denomination. Again, because there's few around who have studied Hebrew now. Um. You're making me slightly envious. If I could go back in time and have my time at at um, university again, I think I might spend less time trying to get into girls' knickers and taking drugs and drinking too much and instead take up Hebrew. I mean... <laughs> you know, in the Waltons, uh, Mama's advice was kisses don't last, cooking do. Well, you might say kisses don't last, theology do. So, yeah, well, I I'm with you there. But I, I think I would have laughed to scorn the idea that, that I would have um, become so interested in theology later on in life. I'd have thought it was just kind of one of those peripheral things that eccentrics Well, it, it explains did. to us uh, why the monetary system is in a, in a wreck, and it even tells us why we are trying to get into girls' knickers and why it's no good for us. So uh, <laughs> the theology is, is, is the apex subject, the queen of the sciences, and the key to theology is the biblical languages. That's always been the classic understanding of all branches of Christendom. So if before um, Tyndall, um, Hebrew was essentially unavailable to in in the West. Yes, a, a, few, a few outliers like 13th century Dominicans in Italy were able to hold disputations with the rabbis on the contents of the Talmud. So they even had some Aramaic. But effectively, yes, the West had had a thousand years of only understanding the Latin Vulgate. It had even forgotten the Greek uh, for centuries before the humanists. So they were dependent up until uh, up until the, the Reformation. 
um, they were dependent for their understanding of the Bible on the Latin translators. Who, who did the Latin translations? It was Jerome, Hieronymus in most other languages, but Jerome we call him in English and French, uh, who did the Vulgata, the popular version, that's what Vulgate means, the language understood by the people. Before that, there was what's known as the Vetus Latina, the Old Latin, which interestingly, the Welsh church, because it was anti-Vatican uh, and independent, kept using until the 9th or 10th century, even longer than the Irish church. But effectively, Jerome's Vulgate, which was certainly not a malicious job, it was an extremely competent passionate Bible translation into Latin for the masses in Rome, in the Western Roman Empire. That was all the clergy had, and even the scholars at universities, when universities became a major uh, fixture of Western scholarship in about the 13th century, that's uh, what they were going for. There was never any intent to uh, stop people reading in the vernacular in their own national languages. The very countries where the Reformation later gained a foothold, basically Northern and Western Europe plus France, um, they were the countries where, on the eve of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church of the time was perfectly happy for uh, wealthy laymen who could afford it to buy Bibles in their own languages. They were, of course, translated from Latin, as was John Wycliffe's uh, followers' version, probably not bound on by Wycliffe himself, but we call it the Wycliffe Bible of the 14th century. These were made from Latin, so you know it's 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 Chinese whispers to a professional translator. You're going two two levels away from the source language, but it's uh, as competent as they could do in the time. And such is the doctrine of Scripture of itself, uh, the the preservation of it and the perspicuity of it, so that God keeps the the, the word of uh, His own word sound, and that the Bible can understand can can interpret itself. That very few of the doctrines were jeopardized or misunderstood by people who intelligently read a Latin or a vernacular like a medieval English translation. There were, of course, softening terms used by the church, you know, so repent became do penitence famously. Uh, but the, the, the malice, the intent to mislead was not there until pretty late before the Reformation. And that's when they suddenly clamped down and said, you'll be burned at the stake if you have an unlicensed English or German Bible. Um. It's not, it's not strictly relevant to the Psalms, but tell me about the Lord's Prayer, which is the most accurate translation of the Lord's Prayer. That is a hard one. Um, the King James is the most accurate and reliable of anything in English. There are two forms of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we've mentioned this in an, a UK column article that Brian Gerrish and I co-wrote. If you uh, search for the word paupers or gaia, G-A-I-A, on ukcolumn.org, you'll find it, uh, talking about Welby. And at, at the end of that article, we say uh, that forgive us our debts has been eradicated. But only from the Church of England. The established Church of Scotland still uses debts in the Lord's Prayer, and it's there in the version in Luke. Uh, there's two versions of many things in the Gospels. There's a Luke version and the Matthew version of the Lord's Prayer. The Luke version uh, doesn't have the words after, uh, but deliver us from sins, from uh, from evil. Uh, for the, the, the doxology at the end, for thine is the power, the glory, and the kingdom, and the glory, forever and ever, amen, is only in Matthew. So the Roman Catholic Church doesn't pray those words. Um, and, but isn't it, isn't it originally deliver us from the evil one? Ah, hoponeros. It could also be toponero. Uh, so it could be the, um, the, the evil one or evil as a phenomenon. That, I was teaching that just the other week to our teenage catechism um, students in our Dutch Reformed congregation, that we tend to translate it the evil one. Apotuponeru makes more sense there as the evil one. Uh, but And especially because it was probably uttered in Arabic, and there it would be hara, so the, the evil um, person. But it could equally well be the evil one or evil. There's 
So, the, the biblical languages don't get so hung up on these things because, to use a technical term, they use substantival adjectives a lot more. They, they personify things as adjectives. Um, so if I really want to do the Lord's Prayer absolutely 100% correctly, I need to learn the Aramaic version. But then you're forming in, falling into the idea that there's some kind of talismanic virtue. I know Psalm 91 is one of your favourites, but um, it, it, to recite with the heart... The, the Bible itself says this in many passages. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. Um, to recite with the heart in your own vernacular, in the best translation you could get, so for English to King James, uh, is far to be preferred. That will do you a lot more spiritual good than trying to go to Ma'alula in Syria, where even after the last horrendous war, they still have a few Aramaic speakers who can recite, as I've heard them do, the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. That, that's a reconstruction. We know what, what we have in the New Testament is Greek. A lot, a lot of people struggle about, about that now. And they say, don't call him Jesus, call him Yeshua. Don't say yeah. the Lord, say, uh, say Jehovah or even Yahuwah, if you're a, a black Hebrew. It, there's more magic totemic power in these words, they say. No, that's, that's not the, the, the Bible or Christ's doctrine of his own words. It's the logic of the words, not the, the sounds of the words. So we're going to have a slight tussle here because... Um I started learning the Psalms. The first Psalms I did were 23 and 91. And I learned them in the King James Version because at that time I was kind of, kind of a newbie and I hadn't been aware of the, the Coverdale, Coverdale translations predating the King James. By and decades. I have to say, I, I think I prefer, on the whole, the Coverdale translations. They seem to have more poetry in them. Many people say that... Um... Is it Adam Nicholson, without an H in Nicholson, is the famously unbelieving scholar of uh, Shakespearean and Bible English, King James English, who's done a number of books and programmes on this and says that he's fascinated by Coverdale for this very reason, the quality. More generally, you can say that even secular Tudor English is less ossified than Jacobean or Stuart English. And you have to consider the uh, the context in which the King James Bible was commissioned, the Hampton Court Conference just after 1600, where the new Scottish king who'd uh, come down to London was successfully ambushed, we say, by a bunch of Puritans uh, who said, Your Majesty, the, um, the existing Bibles are not accurate enough. Uh, and from the court's side, King James, who'd just come down from Edinburgh and was no friend of Puritanism, knew he didn't want to, pr uh, to have more factions in the church. And he also knew that if nothing was done, a lot of people would undercover be reading the Geneva Bible, uh, which had been produced by Puritans in exile in Switzerland, uh, which was uh, much hotter against crowns and, and kings that became despotic. Famously, it had notes that said things in like in, in Exodus 2. It said the midwives were jolly right to disobey an unconstitutional order by the king. So you, you couldn't have that kind of thing. So he wanted to hammer out a compromise. And that became the King James Bible. There were some orders in it like you mustn't translate episcopos as overseer. It must be bishop. You must keep the churchy language. Don't give Presbyterians and Puritans any ground to stand on. Coverdale didn't have any of those hang-ups. He just saw the visceral poetry of the Psalms, as Tyndall did with the songs in the parts of the Old Testament he managed to get to, like um, Judges 5, uh, the song of Deborah and, Sa and, and Barak. Uh, where in, in, in Tyndall's uh, language it's just up, up, Deborah, up and sing a song. You know, it's very uh, earthy and immediate, but that, that was somewhat polished away by the King James men. Um, when, was, when was Coverdale around? 
Because, I mean, he was living in quite dangerous times, wasn't he? It was the, the end of Henry VIII's reign, and uh, pretty much every year there was a new wind blowing from Hampton Court on, on what the, the religious policy was. Thomas Cromwell was the de facto Prime Minister of England at the time. A lot of this detail, by the way, you can read in a three-part interview I did with my father. Go to ukcolumn.org and search for literacy. You'll see a lot of this. Thomas Cromwell, as the chief civil servant at the time, there wasn't really a Prime Minister, thoughts are now is the time for all of those of us sympathetic to the reformation and who want in Tyndall's words the boy that driveth the plough to know the word of god we must judiciously push but Tyndall's name after he had been uh, executed at Philford just outside uh, Brussels in 1536 henry was determined never to hear the name Tyndall mentioned again so his courtiers just skirted around it and gave Tyndall's work a bunch of nicknames and pseudonyms and flattered the king that it was his own idea to have Tyndall published without mentioning the name. And that was all fine, because uh, Cromwell and others realised, and this was a distant ancestor of Oliver Cromwell, uh, over a hundred years beforehand, that the English, should we say the middle class, to the extent that it existed back then, was sick of being misled by um, decrepit and uh, uh, immoral clergy and foolish, ignorant clergy. It was a pan-European problem. All of the northern and western European countries in particular had seen this because they reached that stage of development. And they didn't want to be in hock to that system. Some of them could even see that the Vatican was the problem too. So um, Henry was not content to go all that way. He wanted to be, you know, Catholicism without the Pope. He wanted his own big ego to be the supreme law in church and state with, with no constitutional breaks on him at all. But men used that moment. But as I say, you know, in the, in the process, Cromwell and others did lose their lives. Tyndall too. Uh, but it was worth it, and they, the men engaged knew that it was worth it. Tyndall's dying prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And then the Belgians, not that the, it was called Belgium then, but uh, the people around here, out of respect for his status as a scholar, garroted him before he was um, before they put the flame to the faggots, so he didn't burn to death. Um, why did why has the Church of England? Because I, I, I'm, I'm presuming sort of old school American Christians will get their psalms from the King James. Yes, they do. There's a lively tradition, both Presbyterian and other Protestant denominations in America, of chanting the Psalms. But they tend to write their own music. And unless you're a, a tryhard, you know, a Anglophile, a loyalist, as it were, in America, an Episcopalian, they will still do the chanting, as you'd find in an Oxbridge College or a, an English cathedral. Uh, and all of that would be Coverdale. But that aside, everyone in the States who chants the Psalms uh, would do so in the King James or something else. So why did the Church of England um, retain the earlier version? I think it's because the high churchmen, even in the time of uh, the reign of James VI and I, so the, the 1600s, 1610s, was never completely on board with the King James. They thought they saw it as a hybrid or a compromise. And I think that the choral practice, which is notoriously um, conservative, had already dug its heels in. I like that. I respect that. Yeah, And Coverdale uses Anglo-Saxon cadences. And of course, you know the musical rhythm. You can choose your, your chant tune uh, at will, depending on which chapter or which, uh, I mean, in the sense of which chapter house or which, which choir, choir master you've got, they will have their own preferences. But you, the, the rhythm is da, 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 da. Right. And of course, you've got to fill in how many syllables you, you, you need to, to, to get the whole line of prose in so that the verse is chanted on that many syllables. And that's easier with Coverdale's Anglo-Saxon terms, should we say. Although the King James itself lends itself far better to it than, for example, try the New International Version. Try setting no, that to a, to a cathedral chant. It won't work at all. 
Right. Okay. Well, let, let's get into to, to Psalm two. Uh, why do the heathen so furiously rage together, and why do the people imagine a vain thing? Right. Well, James, do you know where the answer to most things in the Psalms is? No. In the middle. Most Psalms are chiastic. If you're very Greek in your pronunciation, chiastic, C H I, chiasmus, uh, meaning they have a cross structure. The essential stuff is in the middle. This is often the case in chapters of the Bible. And the Psalms, you might think, oh, they didn't have chapter numbers back then. But the Psalms were so carefully composed that the verses uh, and the number of syllables in each verse half was was very carefully calculated by the writers. You know, this is long before the Masoretes came along after Christ and codified it all. So we do know that there's 12 verses here. And that's not just a later addition, as it would be if you were talking other parts of Scripture. There's 12 lines, four strophes or stanzas of three verses, three lines uh, each, uh, three speakers. And if you split it up that way, so you've got one, two, three, space, four, five, six, space, seven, eight, nine, space, 10, 11, 12, you will see that the midpoint is the caesura or the, 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 the fold between verses six and seven. And what is the, the last thing resonating in your mind? There's no sila or pause here, but there often would be in the Psalms. What's la- resonating in your mind as the, set, the first half of the Psalm gives way to the second? Verse six, I have set my king upon my holy hill. That's what they right. haven't seen. So you must always go for the midpoint of the Psalm or very often to see what's going on. That's the essential truth here. God has anointed Christ. And although neither David nor Solomon as precursors or types, nor Jesus himself was anointed on Mount Zion, which stands for the power and dominion of the Lord over his people. Um, Nevertheless, he's been set there. Well, because in the New Testament church, we understand that Mount Zion is the willing people of God. Psalm 110, a partner of Psalm 2, a messianic psalm like this, says that uh, his people will be willing in the day of his power. Well, all those who are willing to see his reign have already recognized him as king. That's the holy hill on which he reigns. He has many subjects. The Psalms say elsewhere that the glory of the king lies in the number of his subjects. And so that's what the fools who are raging against uh, God and against his anointed in this psalm haven't seen, is that there's a people of God that is already acting in his will and which is going to be triumphant on earth. Right. So, yes, yet have my, I remember when I first read this psalm, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Um, and, and then it goes on, thou art my son, this day uh, have I forgotten thee. Um, and I was thinking, wow, this psalm predates Christ by how many years? Probably a millennium. I mean, it was either a sticky event in David's reign or possibly in one of his successors, such as Ahaz, the wicked king later on. But at the very latest, it would be uh, seven centuries before Christ. Probably older. So you've got the equivalent of something that made, it was. It's as if the Anglo-Saxons, um, before the Battle of Hastings, made this prediction of something of an event. Now that's yeah. that's the distance in time, which is extraordinary. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's it's one of the things that appeals to me about the Psalms. And I meant to ask you about this. Um, I wanted you to sort of explain to me why it is I like the Psalms so much and why they matter, why they're not a sort of a peripheral thing, but they're the core to everything. Luther calls them the Bible in miniature, and the Jews have always understood that the Psalms, together with a couple of the shorter poetic books uh, of the Old Testament, notably Ruth and Jonah, are keys because they show God's mind and also man's heart. 
you know, the, the, the events described in the psalm, which is all in, in 2 Samuel, um, so much of the theology of the Bible comes out in that. It's described there in dry, uh, factual terms. But the, uh, the, the, the motives, the feelings of those involved at the time, so what did David feel when he got to Ziklag and all of his camp followers' um, wives and children had been abducted? Uh, well, you know, you, you see in, in cinematic terms what happens in the prose account. You know, they all wanted to kill David and he managed to calm them down and go on the, on, on the rampage against the abductors. But in the Psalms, you see what David felt. And then he asks the, quest, the raw questions of God. Why did this happen? The very word with which this psalm opens, Lama. Why? Because it's, it's cinematic again. Somebody is watching in horror. A poet who may or may not be King David or another king, probably a courtier, sees a bunch of heathen turn up at Jerusalem under either David's reign or a successor and says, how dare they? And, you know, God gives the answer here. That's why the Psalms are so crucial. Um, so the people who wrote the Psalms, I mean, they weren't all written by David, were they? No, about they must, less than they half must, of them. So about half of them. About half, yeah. They must have been in. They must have had prophetic skills, or, or, or I mean, they must have been more in tune with with God than we are today. Yes, and you see it more clearly in the Hebrew because Hebrew has only two verb tenses, a perfect and an imperfect, and the way in which they combine often indicates that uh, they see something as already having happened when it's in fact a prophetic future. That's always struck both Jewish and Christian commentators on the Psalms. And in fact, it embarrasses some of the rabbis uh, that the two main rabbis of medieval Jewry in Europe were uh, Rashi and Kimchi. K-I-M-C-H-I is the latter name. Kimchi was always more predisposed to say the Christians have got some good understanding. Rashi, who's more popular still uh, among the Jews, he's regarded as the the definitive interpreter, is quite fiercely anti-Christian. When it came to the second psalm, by the way, it, it was, we don't know whether it was originally the second psalm because there's no separate title to it, but probably it got edited together with Psalm 1 by Ezra later on so that the two of them form a kind of introduction to the, the material of the psalms. But Psalm 2 was probably composed on its own, even though it has no title. Um, Rashi, treating Psalm 2, says, well, yes, we understand that the Christians... Sorry, we understand that this is about the Messiah and his glorious future reign, but let's not go that way because the Christians, the heretics, as he calls them, uh, are, we're going, are going to taunt us with this. And so instead, let's just, it went challenged, say that this is all about glorious King David and, and refer to Second Samuel verse, uh, Second Samuel chapter 5. But that wasn't the original Jewish understanding of this psalm. Right. And so, OK, so we've got this, this, um, this chap maybe a thousand years ago. Writing three thousand years ago, a thousand years before Christ. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, thousand years before Christ, (laughs) Um, and Jerusalem is is yet again beset by enemies, and he's saying, "How, how is this allowed to happen?" Is that the kind of that's it? In fact, what I might do before we get into the text uh, in the Hebrew and you you reading along is I might give you the poetic uh, Englishing of it, as they used to call it. The, The psalm was Englished for. Uh, Thomas Tallis to set to music, which he did in 1567, in the tunes for Archbishop Parker's Psalter. And people will often know have heard the tune involved there because it's the tune that was used by Rafe Vaughan Williams in his Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. The uh, the quintessentially English tune with the the, the floating cello line. You know the one. Uh, well, anyway, look it up if you don't know it. No, I but do. He, I do know. It's one of my. I mean, I, I like that all that that set of Vaughan Williams pieces. Yes. Yeah, they normally uh, come with the English folk song suite, and um, that's and it. Yeah. Well, many people will not know 
that that uh, Thomas Tallis tune, although Tallis was a high churchman, was written for the Puritan Archbishop Matthew Parker, whose library is still at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. And here, and they've even kept the scheme, so each stanza is one verse of the text. Uh, his is a very Puritan and good understanding of the Christian meaning of Psalm 2. So that will give you the, the spirit of it before we get into the detail. Why fumeth in fight the Gentiles' spite, in fury raging stout? Why taketh in hand the people fond vain things to bring about? The kings arise, the lords devise in councils met thereto, against the Lord with false accord, against his Christ they go. Let us, they say, break down their ray, meaning array, of all their bonds and cords, we will renounce that they pronounce, their lures as stately lords. But God of might in heaven so bright shall laugh them all to scorn. The Lord on high shall them defy, they shall be once forlorn. Then shall his ire speak all in fire to get to them again, therefore. He shall with threat their malice beat in his displeasure sore. Yet am I set a king so great on Zion hill full fast. Though me they kill, yet will that hill my law and word outcast, meaning broadcast. God's words decreed, I, Christ, will spread, for God thus said to me, My son, I say thou art, this day have I begotten thee. Ask thou of me, I will give thee to rule all Gentile lands, thou shalt possess in sureness the world, how wide it stands. With iron rod as mighty God all rebels shalt thou bruise, and break them all in pieces small as shards the potters use. Be wise, therefore, ye kings, the more. Receive ye wisdom's law, ye judges strong, of right and wrong advise you now before. The Lord in fear your service bear, with dread to him rejoice. Let rages be, resist not ye, him serve with joyful voice. The sun kiss ye, lest wroth he be, lose not the way of rest, for when his ire is set on fire, who trust in him be blessed. You see what the spirit of the psalm is, it's, it's giving uh, kings and judges what for, isn't it? It is. It's a much more, um, it, it's sort of a more child-friendly version, I think, than the uh, the one I've been looking at. It sort of lacks the uh, the sturm and drang and... and uh, Actually, uh, Delitz, the definitive German commentator who knows more, I think, than any Jewish rabbi about the psalm. There's, there's no doubt about that, that Christians by his day knew more than Jews about the, the, the meaning of Hebrew. Delitz said that that particular section from verse 5 onwards was Donna Artich, thunderous. So you, you were quite right. God does thunder. I mean, even the rhythms. Verse 5 in the Hebrew, Az Delitz and, and Bishop Peroun say that God is actually starting to thunder there you can even hear it in the rhythms um so um we've got the um the heathen furiously raging together and the people imagining a bit. who who are the heathen well <clears throat> the hebrew here doesn't say hagoyim the goyim or the nations but that's because the psalms often dispense with the definite article it just says here goyim so peoples it could mean the nations all told uh, if we take it prophetically, it means that because all the world is against Christ, uh, because they're sinners. But more specifically and literally here, it's uh, some heathen have turned up to challenge the uh, supremacy 
of the king whom they're supposed to obey. So in the first instance, it's David or his immediate successors who still receive tribute from kings in the vicinity. And as was often the case in the ancient Near East, they decided, we've had enough of this, let's have a conspiracy and, as the psalm puts it itself, uh, overthrow their bonds. Right. And And this this enrages the psalmist because, you know, this isn't an ordinary king, this is a king whom God has put in position. So they're actually trying to murder God, but as always in history, neither evil men nor the devil can do that. They can only get at the church, because Christ has already ascended. Isn't one so the the kings of the earth stand up and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed? Well the first thing they do is Yehagurik. They imagine an impossibility or a vanity in verse one. And then they, they, they proceed to the action you describe. So So it it starts with them make believing that they can be God on earth. Is this not telling us that I think weren't we warned about this in the Bible, where the, the, there's a bit, isn't there, where God says, Yeah, okay, I'm gonna give you a king kings because you want kings but i can tell you now it's not going to work out well that's right and here a we are famous passage it. you know which we often give to students of hebrew because there's a lot of future predictions in it when samuel says do you really want this king he's going to take your daughters and send them off to be apothecaries and whatnot and he, your, your sons are going to be chariot runners very very flowery passage in hebrew good for translation and the, the people of god say yeah, yeah yeah we know that but we just want to be like everyone else Right. Okay. And then here we've got the proofs in the pudding. We've got kings and and other other rulers just rebelling against God. Yes. As simple as that. Uh, you know, with so many th- things in the Psalms, this included, it has a supernatural origin. You know, this, this it's only a reflection on earth of what happened in the heavenlies when Satan and his uh, the angels who were loyal to him said, well, to to use Milton's line for it better to rule in hell than serve in heaven i'm glad you mentioned that to because reign, sorry, yes. because there is a the, the next line is a sort of mix between a mix of of, of of milton and shelley i'd say it's got the sort of romantic notion of let us break their bonds asunder let us cast their cords away from us this this is this is the kind of the luciferian stroke satanic view of god isn't it as an oppressor from whose shackles one must free oneself. Which has come back in in spades with Alice Bailey and all of the um, charlatans who followed uh, Madame uh, Helena Blavatsky onwards, Um, Annie Besant, all of them. Uh, And then as the 20th century goes on, the New Age movement as a whole gets into this, that uh, they even say there's two gods and that Jehovah's a false god and that Lucifer's the real one, or Lucifer was Jesus' older brother and was much, uh, much wiser etc and if you would only go with lucifer's enlightenment then you could you could be god for yourself and no need of uh, of, of uh, the real god this has gone on so many times in history it was clearly very pre- present in ancient babylonian mystery religion the idea was that there was no attempt to deny that god existed but it was more a case of well okay he's our, he's our creator but he's puny and we we will outstrip him by building our ziggurats that's one of the things that's going on in the tower of babel in genesis 11 right Yes, but I mean, I mean, I I sometimes re- read these or recite these psalms in my head, and think they were written for now. Yes, I I see this very much. Um, this this notion spreading, even among sort of awake people, this idea that that yeah, well, okay, there's the Bible version of events, but actually, 
it's it's possible that that that, that you know we were we were created by aliens and and, oh, and yeah. it's, it's all the, dilettantism. I mean, the giveaway is they always say things like "I'd like to think" or "I prefer to believe in the kind of God who." Or if they're supposedly churchgoers, they'll often say, "Well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't condemn sodomy." Yeah, you see what's yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, and, and no, it's, it's making Jesus God in loves, man's image. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've, I, well, see, a lot, a lot of that, that going on. Um, but the, we then have this. Well, I mean, do you want to talk about that a bit more? But about this, because there was um, anyone who's studied Paradise Lost will, will will know that that one of the criticisms of of of, of Milton is. He was accused of being of the devil's party because the character of yeah. Satan is so kind of sympathetic because there he is. He's been cast out of out of heaven, but he, and he's in this in this sort of tar pit surrounded with his rebel angels, but he's going to make the best of it. And yeah, put on a brave face. Yes, it's just a testament to, to Milton's genius, isn't it? And his, you know, like any committed Christian, he, he uh, understood the power of sin. In biblical language, sin yeah. cleaves to us. We can't shake it. It really is a tar baby. It's, it sticks to us. Paul in Romans 7 talking about this. I'm trying to shake it, but I can't. It clogs up everything I try to do. So, you know, the, the overpowering lusts and rages that Satan feels are, are very well known to Milton, and he's, ma- he's making no bones about it. He understands the motives. Yes, which is kind of the answer to the, to the, to the next question question i was going to ask you because um the next the next lines are he that dwelleth in heaven shall last last yes. them to scorn the lord shall have them in derision it's, it's that repetitive uh, structure it, it, it you often get in the psalms which yes. c.s lewis didn't understand he was a complete i mean for an english professor how did he not get this but it, in his book on the psalms which i think is appalling he apologizes for this said oh they're a bit repetitive and some readers may find hang on a second this is the point c.s lewis well Fly. they're not meant to be read by uh, well you can read them while smoking a pipe and, and wearing a tweed jacket you know but and, and about to be to butter your crumpets but they're really for people uh, who are wrestling with the issues of life you know who, who are uh covered in dust trying to recover the the women and children who've been who've been abducted from Ziklag you know with, with yeah. men who can barely make it over the brook so that's that, that's the spirit in which they're written and what stays in your mind uh, is a pulsating double structure uh, at such moments to keep you going you know the anglo-saxon poetry of which lewis's friend tolkien was the great exponent and norse poetry had precisely the same, same structure so it's it's remiss of lewis not to have realized that yeah. The whole point is the A line states things more, quite bluntly, and after the caesura, the second half of the line states things more poetically, so that you meditate upon them. But the, the the cumulative effect of those lines is to tell us God has got this one. Whatever it, the, yes. the whatever it's also the king Jehovah, you know, because he he verse four is the first of the three lines of this second stanza, four to six, and so verse four is a camera cut. Ooh, God's sitting in heaven, and he's having a jolly good belly laugh. And then, quoth God, right? So the, the high point is verses 5 and 6, where God is in his, in his uh, terrifying mirth, saying they really haven't got a clue. So that's why the attention's being called to, to him in verse 4. Yes. So then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. So God is really unhappy at this point. Of course he is, uh, because he knows that they're going to make a hash of it. And it's not just that he's angry with his creatures for rebelling. He's most particularly displeased and always is wrathful against anyone who has a go at his son. It's in this very psalm that we read together with Psalm 110. 
that Christ is his son. He's been given the, the highest name. Read Philippians 2 about this. He's been given the name above all names. Uh, and for anyone to, to dare uh, to, to, to challenge that, to say that, that, that you know, other Christs are available, you know, a world government would be a better bet. God didn't really quite know what he was doing. Uh, it's, it's casting huge aspersions on the suffering that Christ loyally went through for, well, in a reformed understanding, not, not first and foremost to save sinners, although that's the glorious result, but to uh, ensure and safeguard the honour and glory of his father. That's why the father is so pleased beyond all description with Christ, because he underwent all that for his father's glory, to restore his father's virtues, which had been broken by these kings. Okay, so then we get close to the key line. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now Zion is in, is in Jerusalem. Zion is the poetic name for the mountain on top of Jerusalem. Not uh, to be confused with Sinai, the mountain in the Arabian desert, where the law was given. And it always right. stands for God reigning without contradiction among his willing servants in both the Jewish and Christian ages. Uh, it's, uh, it's where God reigns gloriously where, without enemies having a go. So for them to turn up to the gates of Jerusalem, where the temple of Mount Zion are at the top, is such an effrontery. That's what's caused the rage here. Again, God is saying they're having a go down there, clamoring at the gates at the bottom of the city. And yet, although the Hebrew just says and, it's very um, uh, sparing with its, its conjunction. So Hebrew just says and in the sense of all the while. I've already installed my king. In other words, they, they, might, they might storm up and kill him. And, you know, in God's permissive will, they did that to Christ. And, you know, the, the, the Tudor po poetic version I just read alluded to this. They can uh, kill Christ if, they, if they, they, they can try if they want to, uh, but it won't make any difference to his eternal kingship because he's going to be restored. And then we get to this, the psalm does this thing which happens quite often in the psalms where you get a change of perspective. A very dramatic one, only to be compared with Psalm 40 where, again, Christ breaks in in the middle and says, I am here, I am willing to do your will, O God. Here we've got the king, so Christ, uh, following abruptly without a, a marker of the change what yeah. his father has said. I will preach the law whereof the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So it's Jesus declaring, look, the, the, the God has told me that I am his son. Uh, but it, it, it's, can you explain this? It, it's an odd formula for anyone who hasn't really encountered it mm. before where you get this change of perspective. Is this just a, something that they did? In, they did you know, it all over the Psalms, and because they had music and pauses, and because the theology was known to those who sang, uh, it wouldn't have been as abrupt to them. But right. it's always required Jewish and Christian commentators to unpick this in, in their commentaries and say, who's speaking here? Here yeah. it's clear enough from the pronouns uh, and whatever. But it's a massively poetic effect. Again, it's, it's cinematic like so much of the Psalms. Uh, it's it's so much more effective if you suddenly cut to Christ speaking than it is to have some character in the film say, let us go and hear what Jesus has to say about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've got to ask you about that, that translation, Lord, which mm -hmm. presumably in the Hebrew is Yahweh. Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it. The Jewish um, exponents uh, would say you must say Adonai out of respect not to use the Lord take the Lord's name in vain but that's something that they developed in about the third century BC so at the time this psalm was written they would have just chanted it as Yahweh right and in right. English French, English German and Dutch 
they will capitalize the name Lord or Heer uh, in the um, uh, translation to make it clear that the covenant name Jehovah or Yahweh is being used here. Not, not What's wrong with saying covenant. Yahweh then? Nothing's wrong with it, but it's like this idea that you get with the New Testament often where people say, oh, don't give him his Greek name, Jesus. His real name's Yeshua. Uh, excuse me, the New Testament written in Greek. You know, if, if you want to fly in the face of the, the Bible that we've been given, then you might as well write your own. There's nothing at all more authentic about Yeshua HaMashiach than there is about Jesus Christos, the Greek form from which we get Jesus Christ. Okay. Please, God, for that name to be recorded. Likewise, and here's the key evidence, um, the, the, some esotericists, Platonists, did try to uh, capture the essence of the name Yahweh by translate, transliterating it in Greek into the letters Yao, which you might have known is uh, what Alistair Crowley did, you know, the iota alpha omega. And so that among his followers, there was this rage of, of, of mocking the name Yao, which was an alternative pronunciation of Yahweh. What did the pious Jews of the time do before the time of Christ? They simply translated uh, the covenant name given in Exodus um, uh, of Jehovah or, uh, or Yahweh into the Greek word kurios, Lord. And then critically for anyone who takes the New Testament seriously, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Lord using the same Greek word kurios. So that identifies him with Jehovah, and it also tells us beyond any doubt that it pleases God for us to call him Lord in our own languages. So what, in our what? Bibles, we better call him that. Nothing wrong so, with calling him Yahweh, but it doesn't give, give him any more reverence or any more magic power. Well, what is the literal translation of Yahweh, Lord? <laughs> There's been endless debates about that, because Hebrew t- tense forms are so difficult. Uh, as close as we can get is something like, I will be. In other words, I'll never stop being. You can't do anything to to assault, assail my being. Right. So, no, but he he. Um, and there's even two forms of it in that famous chapter in Exodus where Moses encounters God at the burning bush, and he says, "What name, Lord, shall I give when I go back to my people?" And in a couple of verses' time, you see the form Yahweh, but also Ehyeh, which it means I will be and He will be, that respectively, because. It's adapted by Moses. So so when he goes back to the people, he says, he will be. But God himself says, I will be. So there's, there's an, in itself, in the original context, the original chapter where the, the covenant name is revealed, there's a strong indication that it's not a, a fixed magic form. It's just a way of describing God's essence, the one who is. Right. I'm just thinking, then, that Lord doesn't really capture the sort of... the the majesty of, of not Yahweh, the way it's gone because of course you know you you and i have hobnobbed with some some fleshly lords well, you know, yeah. in and out of the of the houses of parliament they're and, all and satanists they're, well yes they're not a not a great shake are they compared with christ so maybe the time has come for us to uh, to use a new word which is deliberately provocative like master or uh, or, or despot or something like that which which are terms used in the new greek new testament of god as well no i'm, I'm just thinking that if, if Yahweh encapsulates the concept of sort of eternal and all being and, and was and ever and will be lord you know it just seems like a bit of a anyway yes and yet it pleased the not inspired but uh, you know well-meaning and very learned jewish translators of the septuagint into greek to use that term kurios because precisely by dint of that fact that pagan languages including sophisticated ones like greek and egyptian didn't have a word that would do justice does Jesus, because I know Jesus quotes a lot of the Psalms in the New Testament or demonstrates familiarity with them, does he mention this one at all? 
This one he doesn't, but its uh, its partner, its other half, is Psalm 110, and he has a whole ding-dong with the Pharisees about that. He says, uh, who do you say the, the Christ is? And they say, well, well uh, our, our proper formula, Jesus, is that uh, he's the son of David. Um, and he, he then says, well, why you haven't got the whole understanding there, because in Psalm 110, not that he uses that number in the gospel, but that's what we know it as, he says, the Lord said unto my Lord. So, you know, who, what, what man calls his son Lord? So he leaves them flummoxed, as on many other occasions, because they haven't realised that great David has a greater son. Ah, you can answer an idiot question of mine, which, which is uh, not strictly germane to this, this, but does Jesus ever actually say outright that he's the son of God, or does he, does he just hint at it and, and kind of... He does in, in Matthew, in the trial. He doesn't say, I am the son of God, because that's not consonant with his meekness in the true sense you know he wants to give honor to his his heavenly father uh, and so he prefers the term son of man but when it comes down to the trial uh, illegal nighttime trial uh, before the sanhedrin and the false witnesses have been shown up for a bunch of clowns um, of course we know caiaphas is is getting beside himself self with rage and he wants something to convict jesus on or at least to send him to pilate uh, so he says he, he actually uses the covenant name of god he says i I adjure you, meaning I, I cause you to swear by the name of uh, the holiness of, of Jehovah. Uh, you, t you tell us whether you're the son of God or not. And even on that occasion, Jesus, as it were, can no longer resist. And it's also he knows it's God's will for him to be condemned. So he doesn't escape the, 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 the moment. But even in that moment, he doesn't say, yes, I am. That would just be you know, not the way that, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ acts. Instead, he says, you said it. In other words, he goes deeper as well as being more humble. And he says, you know perfectly well that I am. Well, yes, but so you kind of answer my question. He doesn't, we're sort of both right. He doesn't directly say, mm -hmm. I am. It, 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 it's, it's to be inferred. That's right. And this makes it a very tricky question whether he was duly condemned under the old covenant. Uh, because they said in John's gospel, we have a law and by that law he must die. That can only refer to the verse in Deuteronomy about blasphemy, but it's questionable whether that was uh, properly invoked. Nevertheless, God permitted it because without the death and resurrection of Christ, which is also the theme of this psalm, he wouldn't be the king and lord of his people. I, mean, I, don't, I don't want, it, this is a terrible thing to do, uh, but it's a bit like, teeny bit like Clinton in his, in his, about, about the dress. I He's, see what you mean there, yes. He's sort of ducking it, ducking it. But that, that, I mean, that's how, how Jesus rolls. Well, he's, he's not, he's, he's he said not... many times in the Gospels, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. He knew what was going to happen. Uh, and when opposition mounted and the Pharisees and Jerusalem authorities tried to murder him, uh, on one occasion there was a mob in Nazareth trying to throw him off the cliff as well, he escaped them. Not because he was a coward, but because he had more ministry. He had more people to reach more miracles to do, more words of his to be recorded before it was time for him to go up to Jerusalem and die. Now, we get to this, the next bit in the psalm where we get kind of South Park Jesus. <laughs> I'm, I'm packing. I think a lot of, a lot of idiots are under the... Um, labouring under the misconception that Jesus is just like peace and love, man. He's kind of a hippie. Um... But uh, here we have um, uh, desire of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Yes, this is especially good because he's quoting what his father has told him. 
He's saying in his he's, this the the point of this stanza, verses seven to nine, is he's fully confident that even though he's going to be murdered, uh, it's in God's will, and he's got victory already assured, boundless dominion, as Bishop Perown calls it, because of this divine decree which he has already heard in eternity past, the same as Psalm 40 and Psalm 110. He already heard it in the divine council before the world was created. But here he's quoting it to us, right? He said that my father told me, ask of me and I will give you a Hebrew and intense way of saying, I'll give you anything you want. You have all my goodwill. And what is his inheritance? The same as the end of Isaiah uh, chapter 53. It's uh, that so many of people around the world will become his uh, subjects and will joyfully follow him. They will be given to him. His work will not have been in vain. Uh, Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And uh, in verse 9, barzel. Uh, yes, so he's quoting what his father's told him. You will break them with an iron rod. And this is the, 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 the climax, uh, musically, I would say, the climax of, of Handel's Messiah in many ways is, uh, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's no, quite it's it's quite violent. So the version I've got is thou shalt bruise them with a rod of iron and yes. break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And you're thinking, wow, um, these are the powers that Jesus could have invoked if he hadn't recognized his kind of purpose was to be crucified. And, you know, well, he could have done all this stuff if he'd wanted to. He really did. But he did, he did crush them. You know, Paul talks about it in various passages. He, uh, he triumphed over them. He, he led them in. Uh, a, a victory parade, you know, the Roman kind where your, your enemies are tied up behind you uh, in a wagon. He did all that. Uh, he openly did it all in the cross. Mm. You know, he, uh, Daniel's uh, explanation to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 about the, the, the statue where the great big stone that was hewn out without hands fell and crushed the feet of the statue, the Roman Empire. It happened. Christ did destroy the Roman Empire and there's never been anything like it since. And Christ himself said, if you fall on that stone, your body will be broken. But if that stone falls on you, you'll be pulverized. And how many has, has that been true of? Think of that pagan emperor, uh, in, you know, I think the fourth century, wasn't it, who uh, avoided and evaded Christ all his life. And at the end of it, he said, you've won after all, you wretched Galilean. That's how Christ destroys his enemies and, and breaks them out to pieces. Yeah. And the, the, there are Vikings, aren't there, in, in the Uhtred saga? I think they're based on real Vikings who, who convert. Oh, yes, yes. That was, that was, all the heroic cultures realised that. That you know, think, think about the Heliand, the old Saxon poem as well, the way to present Christ to those cultures, as, as evangelists did in Asia and Africa not so long ago as well, was to say this is the greatest warrior of them all. Um, where are we now? Yes, where where does the the rod of iron come from? By the way, is it is it a kind of familiar trope from? Yes, it's uh, well, barzel. The iron was the strongest metal there was at the time, and in fact, in David's time, the technology of of smelting iron ore had only just been recovered by the Jews. So we read a verse in the books of uh, Samuel that the, the the Philistines, the Greek colonists, had forbidden the Jews to even to maintain their agricultural implements with iron work. They had to go to a, a smithy in. Uh, in one of the five garden towns to get that done. And David recovered that. And later on, we read in, in histories again that he used uh, axes of iron to attack his enemies. So it's it's the ultimate strength that there was in the time. It, it, gives, it lends its name to the whole era, doesn't it? The Iron Age, which begins in the Holy Land about that time, about the time of, of David. What, what uh, sort of ta- tactics were they using? 
do they have sort of test judos and things or, or, or I'm not sure that they had that kind or... of thing I mean I'm not a specialist on the archaeology of, of the um, the time around 1000 BC but I think it was it was close combat and spears that made the difference and of course chariots were the, uh, the the great weapon of war at the time you needed needed a lot of money and men available for the training uh, but that was the, the biggest formation they had was a bunch of charioteers with some infantry men around them Ah, some put their trust in horses and some in chariots. Yes, and we he had remember. no pleasure in the legs of a man. So again, that was you know that was still in top grade military equipment. You know, a well trained pair of of man's legs. I I would quite like to have been in this area with you know chariots because obviously horses. What's not to like? I think you um, might have found it a bit gory. I mean, the various kings, both uh, Jewish and. Uh, Pagan at the time, uh, you know, end up in a bloodbath at the back of their chariot after one battle too many. Actually, you know what? I, I, I'll take it back. I don't, I, I don't really... Anyway, we've got all this stuff coming to us anyway, because we're going to get the job as Christians, I'm afraid. But there in is these... no promise that the Lord will preserve his church in individual places or times, only that he will preserve his church on earth and it will be triumphant in the end. Well, you, you and I disagree on this, Alex, because you don't think that we're living in end times and that, and that well, we're about... We, we are. We have been since the ascension of Christ. It's the question of whether the end of the end times is upon us. No, I think I, I'm totally going with end of end times. I don't, I don't think we've got... I give, it, I give it 10 years, max. Max. You know, lots of good believers who are of that persuasion, and it certainly gives an urgency to their actions and their service of the Lord, so I'm not going to cast aspersions on it. No, you and I, I'm afraid, mate, we're going to get our heads chopped off, and that is the deal. But then we get to wear white afterwards. To him that overcometh. People should read their book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, okay, so uh, where are we now? I used to be wise now, therefore. Yes, we, oh, have, we have the, the salutary warning. So we've, we've cut back to the psalmist. You know, it was a verse of the psalmist, a verse of Jehovah, a verse of the Son, confidently quoting Jehovah's decree, and now we're back to the psalmist saying... Have you been listening, kings and judges? Be, what is it? Be learned, ye that are judges of the earth. You know what? I'll tell you what, Alex. From what I've seen of judges, of the judiciary, in the last three or four years, I'm thinking they ain't been, been doing their job. Certainly if justice not. is their, their game. You, you certainly read a lot of cases where their, their irascible action you know, belies their temperament. They, it shows that they, they, they perfectly well know that they're, they're not following justice because they all have consciences and God-given intelligence, so they know that they're not following the principles of justice in many cases. I think no, not one of them is, mm. I'm afraid, even, even frankly, Lord Sumption, I don't think. I, I, you, show me, you show me a judge who actually does justice Well, I mean, anymore. Lord Denning is famous, certainly that the noble John Waters has drawn attention to this quite rightly. We, we think of him as a, a Denning as a champion of, of English liberties, but when the, was it the Birmingham Six or the Guildford Four came up for review in 89, I think probably the, the Birmingham Six, he said in his um, obiter remarks, on the one hand there's this great preponderance of evidence that the state fitted these men up and it was a false flag operation all along, but on the other hand that raises the appalling vista that Her Majesty's government is corrupt, so we won't go there, we'll go down the other route. I like these digressions, Alex. Thank you for bringing that one up. That's yeah, because I too had bought into this kind of. It's almost become a meme, hasn't it? The idea that Lord Denning is, you know, just the. Look, there's a lot of. I'm not saying anything about his religious status, but I will say that a lot of constitutional champions in every English-speaking country 
uh, whether they be judges or senators or lords, do turn out to have been wrong ones afterwards. And as you would imagine, like Jesuits in a previous age, Satanists, the dark side, do like to have men who are who have a great cachet of being learned uh, and, and so committed to English liberties. And all the time, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, they're not really uh, put, putting their money where their mouth is. And they no. have questions to answer in their own uh, sphere of influence, shall we yeah. say. Luckily, we have on our side somebody even who's, who's going to whip their asses. Um, Serve the Lord in fear and rejoice unto him with reverence. Um, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and so ye perish from the right way. If his wrath be kindled, yea, but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And that second half, if um, his wrath be kindled, in the Hebrew it's the adverb ki, which can also mean because. So uh, Bishop Perown translates it in his 19th century commentary, for his wrath is soon kindled. In other words, it doesn't take much to get God wrathful. And my people might think, well, how... how uh, vain of God but he's got things to be angry about because he upholds infinite justice so you wouldn't want him to let it sin through would you uh, but that first half of the, sorry go on sorry this is a common refrain in the Psalms and I do rather symp- sympathize with it that the, the psalmist says look when are you going to take action I mean because this 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 psalm is all, okay it says God's going to get really really angry or Jesus is yeah. going to get really and in really fact angry. many of the Psalms that immediately follow three four five six seven uh, are on that very theme you know, when, when are you going to take action, God? That's the, the first note that sounded in... It was probably edit, Ezra that edited the Psalms together in their final order. And before we get to the Psalms of David, there's a whole slew of Psalms that have this action, this, this uh, tenor of, you know, how much sin are you going to tolerate, God? Well, how, I mean, how much is he? Because like, we look around now, Alex, and see, see the, the many evils in the world. And one does does rather ask that question doesn't one well, i think some of the particularly sexual and child abusing sins that we have tolerated on mass now the, uh, the the mass scale of abortion as well as the sexualization of children has parallels in ancient canaan and as i was reading to our catechism students the teenagers just the other night um you know that that's the thing in uh, leviticus that describes to the the jews as as having caused the, the land to spew out its former inhabitants and God doesn't tolerate that for long. You might say, why doesn't he crush it instantly? Well, wheat and tares, anyone. You know, you, you would uproot a, 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 a lot of godly people and a lot of work that pleases God as well uh, if you were to uh, overthrow, overthrow it instantly. But there, there comes yes. a time when, in the, the repeated biblical description, uh, the measure of the sins of a given people is full up, full to the brim, and God can't have any more of it. He's got to take preventive action. Otherwise, his name will be solid and evil will, will break out all over the whole world. We can't have that. God can't have it. I don't think the Canaanites ever went away, Alex. No, no, I don't think they did, actually, spiritually or physically. And that's no. because we know that's recorded in, in the Pentateuch. Why? Because the, the Jews were uh, cowardly and lazy, as all sinful humans are, and decided not to have a go at driving out the strongest ones. They just thought, well, we'll, we'll draw the boundary here and leave them in peace in the mountains. Except you call them the Jews. I don't, they weren't called Jews then. They were the no, they weren't called of Jews at that time. You're quite right. They were the Israelites at that time. It was another yeah. thousand years before they were called Jews, yes. Yeah. And the, the, the injunction at the beginning of Psalm, uh, the, the verse 12 of the Psalm, Nashukubar, lots of people have assailed that reading, kiss the sun. 
and even James Barr, the 20th century commentator, uh, said, oh, well, if you, if you uh, fiddle with the Hebrew consonants uh, and come to what's called an amended reading, then you'll get something else like take instruction. Uh, but you have the Hebrew text that you have, and if you believe it's inspired of God, you do what uh, you can with it uh, prayerfully. And Nashgul Bar does make sense. It's not just kiss the sun, but it also means lay hold of the sun. That's the other meaning of that same Hebrew verb. What, so so that, what does Nasha mean? Oh, no, no the, the, the na bit is just um, uh, a, 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 a prefix. The, the, the verb itself is uh, shaka from the top of my head. And that oh. is either to kiss or to embrace. The two concepts are not teased out, even in Greek, actually, that much. Other ancient languages, too. So it's probably lay hold of him in an entreating way rather than snog him. Oh, I wasn't thinking that it was snogging. I was thinking more it's a sort of um, a sort of kiss of a sort of obeisance or, or respect as you would yes. to a... Like you kiss the feet of somebody to... That sort Actually, of thing? It, so yeah, something like that. I, I might be talking nonsense here, but I think it's the nifal of, uh, of the verb. I should have looked that up before we started but shame on you alex yes. for, for that oversight it's something i would have uh, castigated one of my students for not looking up <laughs> people are going to be you know I, I i was really enjoying that that, that psalms podcast until alex forgot do you know while we're still recording i'm going to look it up using a parsing tool which on, i have yeah so uh we'll, we'll keep talking because it'll take me a few seconds to get to that point um yes so was psalm 110 written by the same person do you think we don't have an authorship actually no uh, i'm getting off the top of my head psalm 110 is a psalm of david from memory but first of all let's just find out nashiku is uh that's the bar where's the nasha ah i was correct that it wasn't a cal but it's not an ifl it's a pl and the root is nashak okay so it is uh, simply an intense form but now we go to Psalm 110, and we will find who the author is. I don't think there is an inscription on that one either. It just starts with... Oh, Le David, yes, I was right. My intuition was right. Psalm 110 is of David. We know that for sure. Psalm 2 we're not certain of, but the, the theme is very similar, so it could be David's. Um, And by way of... Because uh, this has been a really, I've really enjoyed this. Um, and although my podcasts normally go on for you know, like an hour and a half, we've kind of covered covered so much ground. Um, is there is there any other, are there any other ways you you can con- contextualize um, Psalm two in? Uh, I mean, has it been quoted significantly in in Christian history since it was written? Is it is it a yes. what, what, Where does it stand in the pantheon? Well, let's go to the Book of Acts, and again. People will have to look this up uh, because I hadn't repaired it. But somewhere in... Oh, I have a Bible right in front of me, so I should look it up there. In the early chapters, Acts 4, I think, um, the apostles actually, in, when they're facing persecution at the hands of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities at the time, for preaching the name of Christ, they cite Psalm 2 and say, it's now been fulfilled. Acts 4 or 5 from memory. Let's see. course you'll edit out some of the silence here as i look it up so i'll just do that no i i, I tend to go for the kind mm-hmm. of s oh if you want the uh the the, the the rough the 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 single take version then i'm going to be 
I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do because this is a wonderful Trinitarian Bible Society edition with references and people should be using the Bibles with cross-references. I will go to Psalm 2 and it will probably tell me straight away oh, what okay. verses in uh, Psalms. And if you don't have a Bible that has that, you get something called a cross-reference Bible. I think uh, I will. What? Because you know, the middle column... Uh, will show you, you know, where Old Testament quotations come in the New Testament and vice versa. Themes. So, is there is one you can recommend? Uh, anything by the Trinitarian Bible Society. The best is the Westminster Reference Edition, tbsbibles.org. Okay. Um, let us see where Acts. Yeah, so we are. Acts thirteen verses verse thirty three is mentioned. Is that thirty three? Yes, it is. Any other acts? Uh, acts four twenty five. I think that's what we're looking for. Yes. Oh, the chapter was right. Okay, Acts 4, verse 25. I'll go back a bit, actually, from Acts, 20, Acts 4, verse 23. And being let go, this is from, you know, being threatened with beatings up by the uh, Sanhedrin. They, the apostles, went to their own company, the early church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they, the church, heard that, they, the whole church, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David, there's your answer. It's not in Psalm 2, but it is said here that it was David that wrote this psalm, although that's often used uh, figuratively in the New Testament to mean David, you know, by, by the Jews of the time to mean the book of Psalms. Has said, quotation from Psalm 2 begins, why did the heathen rage, which is a, a very correct translation of the um, the tense in the Hebrew, it's it's a perfect tense, why have they raged? And the people imagine vain things. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So there's a whole, a full translation of the first couple of verses. Uh, you know the general rule if you quote the first couple of verses of a psalm, uh, both Jews and Christians understand that you've quoted the whole psalm. So, for example, on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is, is, is praying in aid the whole of the 22nd psalm, including his promised victory at the end of the psalm. So they quote that. So in other words, they're saying, O Lord, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Acts then goes on to say, in verse 27 of chapter 4, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, and the theme of sonship is in Psalm 2, whom thou hast anointed, and that's in Psalm 2 as well, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, again mentioned in Psalm 2, you see why they mentioned it, and the people of Israel were gathered together, pray the early church, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And they go on to say, Lord, see this and don't ignore it and punish it and let us carry on preaching Christ. So that's the understanding that the church has already had, always had of Psalm 2. That's, it's, it's a psalm that says, don't be surprised uh, if you get preaching uh, bans uh, and if you see Christ ridiculed uh, and have the same attitudes to it that Christ and his heavenly father have, which is puny little people who cannot stop his will being unfolded on earth. Um, Alex, um, I've loved that. Tell us where we can find your stuff. UKcolumn.org, where there will be an increasing amount of Christian output with me and Brian, I understand. He's quite keen for that, as I am. And oh, on Telegram, Eastern Approaches. The direct link is t.me slash eastapp. Brilliant. Um, and it only remains for me to thank my beloved viewers and listeners. 
do do keep supporting me um, if you can. Um, I, I, I find locals and Substack probably the best, although you can try Patreon and Subscribestar if you prefer. Or you can buy me a coffee. And please continue to support my, my sponsors. My sponsors produce some good stuff, which I think is worth your attention, whether it's, whether it's gold or, or, or vitamin um, supplements for your health, which is going to be more, more important in these coming dark times. Um, and finally, may I ask you to spread the word? I mean, if you're a Christian, or even if you're not, just, and you've enjoyed the, the Psalms podcast, share it among your friends. I, I'm, I'm very proud of these, of these Psalm podcasts. Um, and I love talking to people like Alex about this and getting under the skin of the Psalms because I, I think they really are important. And I would recommend learn learn the Psalms, inhabit them, um, because they they ward off demons and they put you on the right path. That just take it from me; it's true. It, it really works, doesn't it, Alex? These things Amen. work. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You you will find yourself protected in a way you didn't understand. But again, it's not some kind of amulet to wear you're protected because you've understood and prayed the psalm and the spirit of god will uh, protect you yeah um thank you very much that was great thank you